Today is April 16th, Thursday, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, East Coast time. Uh, my name is Khadija Abdurrahman, and this is the We Be Imagining podcast. I'm here with my co-host, um, uh, Stanley Munoz. Say hi, Stanley. Hey, hey. Um, and Elon Mandel. Hey, Khadija. And Stanley, where are you right now? Yeah, I'm in San Diego, California right now. So and West what about Coast. you, Elon? Uh, I'm in New York, New York City. <laughs> um, and I'm really excited today to have the opportunity to interview Andre Brock Jr., author of Distributed Blackness, African-American Cybercultures. How you doing today, Andre? I'm well. I'm glad to hear y'all's voices. Y'all sound quite um, um, professional, which I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, don't worry, I'll we're bringing it, for sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Andre, would you like to introduce yourself and in, in your work a little bit? Sure. Uh, my name is Andre Brock, as you said. Um, I'm a professor, an associate professor at Georgia Tech. My area is um, largely defined digital media, sharply defined uh, blackness and digital media. And I've studied it for the last decade, uh, looking at uh, blogs, uh, social media, uh uh, web browsers and other applications and video games. Cool, cool. And I think I said to you um, on the email when I initially invited you to come onto the show that I ordered distributed blackness in preparation for the shelter in um, for my personal quarantine syllabus. I'm mm. about halfway through what you rightfully call your magnum opus. And <laughs> I have to say the book is very dense. I find myself, while I feel like I have a pretty decent vocabulary, often having to look up and refresh myself um, with different uh, sociological concepts um, and just uh, <laughs> Don't nah, apologize. It's okay. it's I mean, a good thing. Yeah. Listen, got me together real quick. Yeah, no, Stanley and I be back and forth texting each other, snapping, clapping, bowing. <laughs> I mean, there's just so much in there. And I was just wondering that could you talk a little bit about um, what it means to distribute blackness um in this context of a falsely branded neutral internet that you talk about and also kind of what do you something we've talked about on the show and how you ended your talk on interrogating digital blackness at the carter g Wiston institute was mm -hmm. that black people been new mm -hmm. black people been new that there was apocalypse and we've been trying to think about um surviving the end times but there also feels like this tension between that knowingness in this moment and the ways in which what feels like an ethnic cleansing of black folk in this Ooh. moment where COVID-19 has a really disproportionate impact on us, mm -hmm. you know, for a combination of reasons, existing public health disparities. Um, I'm really concerned about the disproportionate impact of the surveillance apparatus when we're talking about contact tracing apps. Um, so yeah, that's a lot, but if you could say a little bit about your book and like, what does it feel like to release it? And then the world suddenly changed kind of in tandem. It's kind of insane. Um, so I mentioned that I've been doing this work for over a decade. And so this book, uh, as opposed to being like a single topic monograph, uh, is instead kind of a compilation of some of my earlier stuff with some me and, and me thinking forward on some newer stuff. Uh, and so it is kind of dense for that. I apologize. Um, but it distills my, I, my understanding since I started writing on this in the early 2000s that the network enables a type of blackness that we previously hadn't been able to see or take advantage of, and we being brown folk. 
um, and that it allows us finally to talk back and interact with minimal um, interference from uh, mainstream or even uh, Black authority structures. Right. And so the interactivity that uh, pundits have talked about since the mid 80s that the computer was going to promise us, we've realized it in several different ways. And the ways that the ways that we realize it, uh, I argue, are drawn from our offline understanding of what it is to be black in a white racial construct. Um, and that somehow translates really well to discussing it on the Internet. So that's where distributed blackness came from. Uh, in the book, I use the example of the Green Book and how it was one of the first black network browsers uh, where the network was something we didn't build, but we wanted to be have just as much access to the United States highway system. But in our usage of that, we were constantly confronted by white racial structures, whether it was people who wanted to lynch us or sundown towns or people who uh, just simply didn't want to be bothered with us. They felt that we were beneath them. And so we created spaces and logged spaces where we could vivify ourselves, where we could bring ourselves back to life or have leisure or even just take a breath in the middle of tra driving across country. Right? And so that, that distribution is, is, I think, an, a really interesting way to understand not necessarily community, but what we can do with the network when we're given access and allowed to define it on our own, on our own terms. Thank you for that. And just as a point of clarity, the density is not really a critique. I mean, it feels like in a lot of ways we've been owed. I feel a similar sense of frustration with the discourse around the digital divide and this very like psychosocial deficit based narrative that the only thing to talk about black people on the internet is the ways in which we historically have not had access or mm -hmm. the ways that we use the technology is somehow inadequate or inappropriate um, or frivolous. So I just, I, I feel like there was a major, um, need to kind of address the scope and the depth of what's happening right now, which I really feel reading, reading your book. So I, I do want to just acknowledge that. I appreciate that. Thank you. The one thing I wanted to do was I felt like blackness online had been under theorized. Like a lot of people mm -hmm. bring their disciplinary understandings of blackness, but they don't feel the need to explain it because they're writing to people who already understand, or there's people who write about tech who are like, oh, look, I found some black people, but they want to explain what the tech does. And I was trying to weave in between those two perspectives. Um, that and should one of the be in the introduction was... of your book. I think it really it really captures um, a, a lot of what I perceived in reading it. Um, mm -hmm. Especially, I think I spend a lot of time in the in the latter group, and so hearing it brought in uh, from a like theoretical grounding was incredibly valuable. Thank you. Thank you very much. One of the things that I was curious about in the beginning half of your book, you spent a lot of time talking about Blackbird, uh, a browser, a search function that was dedicated kind of FUBU for us by us. Mm -hmm. um, and as the project embarked on by Blackbird um, to create this kind of curated browser, something that we should abandon and we should more focus on data governance? Or is this moment of crisis a time where we can begin thinking about um, investing in uh platform specifically dedicated to black information science or what kind of, what is your take on that? So let me uh, begin by comparing it to a recent phenomenon, the uh, discourse against black blue checks or the Blavity Blacks. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you guys are familiar, if your audience is familiar, but there's recently over the last few years been a talk back about people who see themselves as just normal internet users and they're uh, 
very strong disdain uh, for people who are verified on Twitter's platform and elsewhere uh, because they feel that those people have had to somehow sell their souls in order to be verified and therefore they are not true to the, the common meaning of blackness, right? Uh, that coalesced mm-hmm. around uh, an incident at the Smithsonian or the Blacksonian uh, the National Museum for African American History, where the curator for the hip hop exhibit is a white woman named Timothy Ann Burns, and mm-hmm. when that came up, uh, the cop, the what I call now Sergeant at Arms Twitter was up in arms because they're like, well, how can a white woman curate uh, hip hop? They should have had somebody like mm-hmm. Grandmaster Flash or African Bambata, and many of the verified folk on Twitter, many of whom are journalists or academics and the like, who have had actual interactions with the museum as opposed to wanting to go, were like, no, she's perfectly qualified uh, to curate as opposed to just being a practitioner, and that unleashed a firestorm. Blackbird is similar in that way, in that it was a group of developers uh, with Silicon Valley ties, but they're Black men, and they took it upon themselves to define how a particular Black artifact should work, right? So they they paid for a Google-targeted search, something that Google doesn't really do anymore, at least visibly, uh, that highlighted Black terms. Uh, if, you know, if you're familiar with Sophia Noble's work, um, mm-hmm. uh, where she talks about how using Google search uh, for certain terms will bring you to porn results. The targeted search that the guys at, at Blackbird figured out didn't have those same results, right? So that was one of their strategies to get a search result that was for positive Black culture. The other was to build kind of a walled garden where Black people could you know, be in their own little spot in the cafeteria, except on the internet, and have resources that were by them for them. Um, going back to my earlier point about people who are Black but and already understand their Blackness, talking about tech versus people who are talking about tech um, and just kind of don't understand Blackness, the tech folk were like, oh, well, this is going to be used for Black people to avoid weapons charges and get out of paying child support. And (laughs) the Black folk were like, you don't know who I am. You don't understand my Blackness. My Blackness is not a monolith. I don't want any parts of this because I didn't have any parts in putting it together. They were also worried about being segregated off the internet, right? And so Blackbird is really instructive for anybody who's thinking about building a space for us by us because they now have to be even more aware of the concerns of people who aren't necessarily their primary stakeholders. They're not the funders, they're not the tech folk, they're not even the pundit class, the academics and um, journalists, right? They're ordinary people who are concerned that they are somehow being minimized when, when codified into data. Right. Uh, and there's there's similar parallels. Uh, there's an article I love right now uh, by a guy named Ramon Amaro, and he's um, talking about the work of Joy Bulamimi at MIT mm-hmm. and her quest to make black folk more visible to um, computer vision algorithms. And I heard you talking when I, I logged in. Amaro talks about this idea of the black technical object. Right. And it's really a a fascinating concept to me, because if you codify blackness, how do you avoid it from being an object and instead make it a subject? Right. And that's a really hard problem to solve because black subjectivity is not part of the white racial construct. It's something we've had to fight for and 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 scribble, scrabble for right over the last 400 years. So if you build tech structures that are intent on visualizing it, is that the same thing as giving it agency in those spaces? It's a really tough question to answer. For real, especially when thinking about computer vision, because Mm -hmm. computer vision, I mean, 
you know, the socially embedded context that that is exists within is often like surveillance apparatuses. And I mean, what Simone Brown talks about a lot in Dark mm-hmm. Matters and CCTV. Um, and, you know, I think there that opens up a right to refuse. Do we want to be seen or distributed on certain networks that were never created for the interest of our community? Right. Or do you want to be seen on, on networks like, say, BET Plus? <laughs> and not to drag, you know, Robert Johnson and Kathy Owens at TV One or anything like that, but are the representations of us on BET Plus or Oprah's own network, are those sufficient? <laughs> See? Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler Perry Studios, is that sufficient? Right. And so it's like, be careful what you ask for. And so how does the, is, is this where the ratchet figures in? Is this where we're supposed to be using TikTok and, you know, creating our own videos in the everyday? Or do we build, or do we reopen the question about rebuilding our own platforms? Or, you know, kind of what's the strategic response to that? Um, it's a really good question. The, I think as far as I'm concerned, the strategic response is build a platform with as much openness as possible. And, and that I'm referring to Black Planet which had its own struggles getting off the ground, but at the time was one of the first spaces where Black folk could congregate on their own, but also use HTML tools to build out this really robust ecosystem where people were getting paid to design homepages or provide cursors and the like, right? And so it really created like many, if you talk to many coders of a certain age, they're like, yeah, I learned how to code HTML on Black Planet and MySpace. I was making $10,000 a month, right? Because people wanted to pay me. Uh, and from that, I went ahead and learned more uh, corporate, I, I argue, corporate or more formal languages. And now I'm, I'm, I'm in the STEM fields, right? But that was the way a lot of people got started. And that space for creativity, as opposed to something that is deeply locked uh, within a particular platform or service like TikTok, um, although TikTok does require a, a huge amount of formal editing that's not evident in the final product, usually. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a combination of, do you, you need it as open as possible, but as accessible as possible so that people who can, uh, will tool up and learn how to use it in ways that are productive for them. And the tech his, tech history is littered with, uh, applications and services that thought they were doing just that, right? If you think of the microblogs of which Twitter was initially considered, there's path, there's uh, Jaiku, J-A-I-K-U, to a lesser extent, there's Tumblr, right? All these spaces that are relatively open, but depending on how they're taken up, either uh, fail miserably or fail less spectacularly. It's a, it's a really tough thing to figure out. Do you see any spaces plant- today that, that kind of evoke that? Or, or really, you just see the, the kind of massive platforms that I think scare many of us <laughs> Um, first mover advantage is a huge thing in tech. Y'all know that like the early adopters who get to establish a foothold and mind share tend to dominate and drown out smaller voices. So I was holding out hope for diaspora. Remember the Facebook clone, uh, or Mastodon, Mm -hmm. which is Mm self-hosted instances of a Twitter like client, but they require a lot of spin up knowledge, a lot of tool knowledge in order to build. And then you have to attract people to them. So I'm, I'm, in that particular realm, I'm kind of I'm more pragmatic than pessimistic. I don't necessarily see it, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. In the meantime, uh, I'm really encouraged by the growth of creators on TikTok and the like, um, especially the young folk who have these fantastic video editing skills. But I don't think TikTok in and of itself is sufficient. Uh, I don't. I am an old person, and I don't necessarily want to have to only consume video content. I like to read. 
Uh, and so <laughs> I ain't got time to be watching your TikTok <laughs> videos all day. I love to surf Twitter and read threads from people and stuff like that. I like a blogging style platform, uh, but the time for blogs has passed. So it's a really interesting question to think through. Uh, what I call in my classes a problematic, right? You recognize that there is something that you should, should be addressed and you try to figure out how to address it, but it's not necessarily going to be solved. We, we need to, I think, sometimes step away from solutionism and just see what tools we have that can be used to achieve the aims that we're looking for. And I just wanted to lift up your Black Planet example, because to me, juxtaposing that to maybe like Black Girls Who Code or some of these other initiatives to, quote unquote, close the digital divide, mm-hmm. um, desire or pleasure as like a motivating yeah. for people to improve yeah. their skill sets and, yeah. and to define that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really, I don't know, that your exploration of the libidinal economy really resonated with me. And could Thank you talk you. a little bit about what that is and kind of how it fits into this? Uh, so I'll steal a line from the book. Uh, libidinal economy is the tensions, desires, uh, intentions, uh, pleasures, hatreds, all those things that power what we would normally consider to be rational enterprises or uh, capitalistic enterprises. So the idea that you can be logical and objective is it's, it's is itself a libidinal move because you're suppressing your emotional instincts in order to do a type of thinking, right? So to me, libidinal economy is really important because it gets at some of the motivations that that. Uh, the academy and tech industry couldn't necessarily understand why people were flocking to certain platforms and not others. So I would argue like the Facebook uh, like and poke really stimulate and the friend, right, stimulated something that previous efforts for social networks didn't really capture, right? Uh, Similarly, Twitter's openness, at least at first, but also its broadcast and intimacy also stimulated something libidinal as opposed to productive or rational, right? That really drew people to it. And so libidinal economy uh, was, for me, a way to try to operationalize what a belief is or a feeling, right? Because in many analyses of technology, we never get to the belief. We only get stuck on what the product does and what people do with it, but we never understand why. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read Dana Boyd's work. One of her articles is really canonical, and it talks about white flight from network spaces where college kids left MySpace in droves and went to Facebook, and in the process rebranded Facebook, uh, MySpace as ghetto, right? It just so happens that MySpace was a teen space, at least in the early 2000s, and there were a lot of brown kids on it uh, because that was where their artists that they loved went to. But as soon as a space opened up for uh, white kids who were going to college that was associated with college networks, they left it. And in the process, they racialized MySpace, right? Uh, Black Planet never had that problem because Black Planet was racialized in the first place. Uh, But it's really interesting to think about things in that regard that race and culture and sexuality have belief uh, capacities that structure the way we use particular networks. Hmm, thank you. I'm over here snapping. That just makes so much sense to me in this moment. And I guess I was wondering also if you could speak to, I'm often, I also work at Cornell Tech and I'm a lot, around a lot of computer, computer science, technically based people who I think have been really caught off guard um, <laughs> by this moment in a way that the people in the queer, critical race theory, social theory world, um, I mean, no one was prepared for a pandemic, but are, mm-hmm. you know, have been more in dialogue around 
the end times, around world building, around like apocalypse, around like carceral spaces, we're prepared. Um, and can you just talk a little bit about like how does how does that play out right now in this moment? Um, as far as you know, people, most people that are are communicating with people outside of their houses are communicating on these like proprieta- proprietary tech platforms. So how does that play out now? It's really interesting because prior to the pandemic. Um, people were really down on the internet. Like it had become a thing where everybody would come on their favorite social network service and talk about how this was a hell site and this was the worst place possible, but I'm just here because I need to have something to do. And what it turns out is all along, the internet has provided a level of sociality for us that was not achievable in our suburbs and our gated communities and our enclaves, you know, uh, um, uh, in uh, particular net, uh, uh, segre- gentrified networks. It provided a, co- a level of sociality where we could stay in contact with people. At the same time, though, uh, and this happened when the internet became more uh, open in Web 2.0, you also have, it has also allowed access to a huge number of people who were already predisposed to understand that this this world is not built for us, right? Uh, in some cases, in my community, we talk about them as hoteps, or ashy Twitter, uh, where they are predisposed to thinking about the world in apocalyptic terms, uh, in terms of the Illuminati, which also happens to be for them highly flavored with misogynist and objectifying rhetorics, right? And for them, there's always, we've always had doomsayers, right? And the way that the pandemic, the news about the pandemic spread, that it was particularly affecting Black communities, just really heaped gasoline on that fire. So now, uh, I would argue as many as 30% of all internet users, but a higher percentage in black communities and brown communities are convinced that this pandemic was a man-made uh, uh, technology that was designed to decimate and destroy black communities as if they weren't already being decimated and destroyed by capitalism and environmental racism and all these other uh, government programs. Right. And so it's a it's a really weird confluence because the openness of the Internet and its ability to allow us to communicate also allows for the rapid spread of ideas that have a, a, a slight basis in reality that black people are being killed at a higher rate from a systemic perspective. Right. Um, and so I'm not trying to dismiss the concerns of people who are who are rightfully aware that black people are always going to be. Uh, how did. Um, Ruha, I don't think Ruha said it, but she's been saying it recently online, Ruha Benjamin, that when white people catch a cold, black people get the flu uh, or cancer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and so it's it's not to say that that rationale isn't true, but I, the pandemic is not a man-made uh, th- artifact. It uh, People think a wet market means that black uh, Chinese people were eating bats. A wet market is a place which is where you can get fruits and vegetables. Right. It's just <laughs> as opposed to a dry market where you get grains and rice and stuff like that. A wet market just has fresh food. Right. And so the combination of racism, of xenophobia and the like has really contributed to the spread of racialized panics uh, in, in brown communities and white communities. It's an it's unfortunate, but it's also a part of the information spread. Now, uh, the thing I am concerned about and tell me to shut up when you need to um, is the spread of surveillance capacities. Uh, or, or the uptake of surveillance capacities by both tech companies and by governments ostensibly to monitor uh, contact tracing, which is the concept that you need to find out when somebody got sick, all the people they've been with, or uh, in black terms, who all going to be there. Um, <laughs> and so 
Uh, that part is important. Uh, there's a small country in Europe I just read that has now mandated that every citizen in their country wear a bracelet which monitors their temperature and reports back to a server so that they can tell um, uh, who's sick at what time and how, who they came in contact with. Right. And while I think that level of surveillance is necessary, that execution of surveillance on a more heterogeneous population that includes people that white folk hate or don't want to be bothered with will inevitably result in poor conditions overall for us. Sorry, that's a lot. You made me think on that one. Nah, I appreciate it. Um, and I want to give Stanley and Ilana a chance to respond, but I just did want to, and I'm really interested in talking about the contact tracing apps, but I did want to just go back to one thing. You mentioned Sophia Noble, um, and I, I loved Algorithms of the Oppressed, and she's also somebody I, I enjoy following on Twitter. Um, but one of the points that she makes in that book, and I think people forget that she also got her PhD, I believe, in library science, and she talks about the rise of Google and the decrease in librarians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have basically every non-academic black person in my life sent me that same video about mm -hmm. 5G causing Corona. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a part of me that's just also like, we're just underserved in terms of curation of scientific information at times. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, not to overly glorify the role of experts, but I mean, when we think about um, getting access to like virological news and information that not only explains that um, this wasn't developed in a Chinese lab or what wet, uh, what wet markets really are, but like mm -hmm. how um, the suburbanization and deforestation is kind of some of the, the of part of our global neoliberal economy as part of what underlies the spread of coronavirus. Like how much do we, are we losing on our librarians and our curators on these platforms and how much that wasn't made visible to me is just tied in. Um, Cause so, I mean, the hoteps, they, they, they got time for that. Yeah, they do have time. Uh, they make money off of it. That's the important part. So Sophia and I graduated from the same school. Uh, we're about three, four years apart. Uh, and librarianship has long been in decline, even before um, uh, the internet became a thing, because uh, federal and state governments have really savagely slashed budgets for things which don't fit a management mindset. Uh, you can't really prove the productivity of a library, right? <laughs> Just because people check out romance novels, they don't see that as being productive. And, and so in many cases, libraries had already, I, I grew up in New York City, libraries had already had their hours cut back terribly, right? Uh, because they just couldn't justify paying staff to sit there and tell people what book to read. That didn't seem to be to them to be a productive space. So austerity and neoliberalism did their damage to libraries as it did to newsrooms as well. I think newsrooms are a really important part of what you're asking for information and ways to explain information. Uh, long before the internet came through, the inter internet has simply accelerated that process. Inter the internet and neoliberalism, let me be clear, because if you look at uh, the current situation with the virus, where private equity firms run uh, the doctor's groups that staff hospital emergency rooms, and they're now saying they have to pay those doctors less because they're not doing non-essential surgeries in the midst of a pandemic, right? You'll understand that it's not just librarians, it's a mindset, right, of where uh, certain things are not deemed practical or needed unless they provide uh, the ruling class with capital or profit, right? So to go back to your earlier point, one of the things I talked about uh, with my students is the difference between uh, data information, knowledge, and wisdom, right? Uh, and they always get hung up on data because they think that data is something that is raw and data actually isn't raw. Data is documents that are processed either by your sensorium or by another machine right? And then it gets fed into something which is capable of making it into information, 
for the black community, our understanding of information has always been predicated on knowing what foolishness, I was going to say fuckery. Um, I guess I did say fuckery. What fuckery white folk are up to. And in many ways, uh, theories which many people outside our community think of as just uh, baseless conspiracy theories have helped to keep us alive, right? If you think about that, that commercial, The Talk, where the Black woman is talking to a young son about how to interact with police, white people thought that was the most terrible mm-hmm. anti-cop propaganda ever, right? Because to them, it wasn't mm-hmm. something that managed, that made sense in their world. But for us, it makes perfect sense. I never discount conspiracy theories. My younger brother called me the other day. He's like, because my mom passed last year. He's like, do you think my mama had got the flu fa- flu vaccine? That's why she died. I was like, fool, your mama had lung cancer. <laughs> and I wasn't trying to make fun of him, but I wanted him to be understand. Like, I know these theories are going around, like the flu vaccine is killing people, which was there, which was has been something in our community long before, which isn't even anti-vaxxing. And now 5G, things we don't clearly understand, but which are also endlessly hyped up by authorities which are usually not on our side that tends to bring suspicion in our communities and 5g and carrie hilson right is also one of the things nobody really knows what 5g is uh and so that it, it just ties into that thing where we were already talking about cell phone radiation kills people you remember that when they were selling the little sticker that went on the back of your phone that supposedly stopped radiation at a at 117,000% markup, mm-hmm. right? And so we've always had these suspicions of technology too, because we're aware that technologies will be used against us. Sorry, I, I tend to talk a lot. Uh, Elon and Stanley, well, you, you guys have something to say. Well? Elon and Stanley. Yeah, I do actually have a question on contact tracing. It's interesting that you mentioned the way that it's being implemented in governments, specifically very homogenous governments like China, Mm -hmm. South Korea, um, Taiwan. But um, we haven't really heard much about these uh, or about specific marginalized populations in China, like the Uyghur population, for example. There was already a lot of um, tracing of that population generally, Mm -hmm. but now there's no information on uh, the COVID-19 outbreak in that community. How do you see that playing out in a more um, heterogeneous population where, oh. because we have Black Twitter, right, we can talk about certain things that um, the Uyghurs don't don't have access to? Oh, you mean like ICE using Palantir and stuff like Cambridge Anal- uh, Analytica to, um, to find out immigrants and them conducting raids and PPE on immigrant communities as soon as we had shelter in place? You mean like that? There we go. like they they two steps ahead of that already uh and i agree you haven't heard anything about the uyghurs uh since china's uh clamped down on information also china didn't even report their um covid19 stats up uh properly so we don't know we really don't know what's going on on the ground in china we have a better sense by looking at hong kong and taiwan and singapore which are adjacent right Mm -hmm. um but yeah, anytime you have a technology which is designed to control a population, you bet your bottom dollar that the minority populations are going to bear the brunt of that. Um, I can understand. I, I'm really curious to see how underreported the numbers of COVID-19 is in immigrant communities here in the U.S., given how ICE was congregating at courthouses, taking people out of hospitals, going to urgent care clinics and pulling people out while their kids are waiting for help for uh, support and stuff. Right. And that's not been reported because they're so focused on uh, what it is that the, we have to do to deal with the pandemic. But that was in the first weeks 
of the pandemic, uh, a couple of outlets were reporting that ICE was getting supplies of PPE before hospitals were. They actually wanted a few million masks to aid in their enforcement programs. Isn't that crazy? To aid in their enforcement programs while they continued their mission on on deporting people to the point where now they're they're not they're deporting people to countries which will no longer accept them and they're still trying to do it. Right? It's it's, it's madness. Yeah. Um, on the contact tracing app, I mean, I do think that, you know, I think a lot of us in the privacy surveillance regulation space start from kind of what are the implications of implementing this when it really should be about will this stop COVID, this tra- the community transmission of COVID-19? Will this decrease mortality rates? Does this give us additional, will these technologies give us additional information about the transmission of COVID-19? I think besides what is easy to predict about what happens when you start collecting all of this data and potentially in like centralized uh, platforms with mm-hmm. access to public and private actors, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, is this really even addressing the fundamental problem? The fundamental problem is containing, mitigating, tra- you know, stopping a pandemic. You know, do these technologies even address that? And so, I mean, that was just like my... Contact tracing is, is useless without testing and we don't have testing, right? Like it's, it, it's like, it, it's a flawed premise assuming you can't actually test people, right? Because you can do all the contact tracing you want, but if you can't actually confirm who isn't, who isn't sick, it, it's fundamentally pointless. No, I'm going to push back on that. So uh, there's a really great article. I will, I'd be happy to forward to you guys. The guy who was doing contact tracing in Singapore. And what he pointed out is that contact tracing is super important, particularly for a disease uh, uh, infection, which is as surreptitious as COVID-19, which can be ca- transmitted by asymptomatic people for six to seven days before they show a sign, if they ever do. Like the guy in... Um, And the U.S., uh, the first case in the U.S. was a super spreader. He was asymptomatic and spread it to approximately 100 people before they even found a positive on him. Right. And so the idea that this thing is surreptitious kind of is bad and good because it's bad because it's hard to detect and therefore uh, encourages people to think that they're not infected. Right. And then when they are infected and it's found out via surveillance modes, they're like, oh, well, this is just a plan of the man to keep in track of me in the first place. But you have to have contact tracing because it is such a surreptitious disease to find out who all has been who all has been there. Right. Uh, to catch to be able to be in contact with that person in the first place. So testing is important, but tracing is even more important for this disease. Uh, and I'm not making a really good case for it. I apologize. But I'm really kind of. uh, uh um excited around this point because the first step to knowing that you have a disease is understanding who's got it. Uh, and if you can detect it symptomatically before you have to take them to the hospital and stick a coat hanger up their nose, which apparently is how it feels, uh, to get that test, that's super important. It's less invasive. It's more effective because it's spread over a wide net, which a pandemic needs. right? Uh, and so it's a really thorny problem. Um, in part because of the way that the virus operates. And in many cases, I don't know about your uh, small, uh, your intimate networks, but in many cases, many of us have had the flu or flu-like symptoms already, right? And have had either chills for no apparent reason or a fever which you couldn't shake or have had trouble breathing, but that's not necessarily tied to the way the government defines what a COVID infection is it's still a COVID infection. Contractation will allow the government to understand from that wider definition who actually has had it and has been spreading it. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, the I think they agree. My, my, my point on that was like the initial node who you confirm is is six so that you can do the contact tracing. You don't have those nodes until you've done testing. And that was my only point. We have not ramped up testing to a sufficient degree. No, Instituting a mass contact tracing regime uh, allows you to, to like get the benefits of it. But I completely yeah, agree. It does. It's, it's, a th it's a thorny problem. I will, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, I was just going to add, I mean, I'm not starting from a point of like, I'm just anti-surveillance period, even when it's a public health crisis. I think it's just more, you know, I think we're all desperate for a solution right now. And if it got us out of our houses, I think people who would have once pushed back on against massive surveillance would would endorse this. But mm -hmm. I think that, you know, there's, there's examples of Bluetooth tracing, which seems to have a little bit better geolocation than some of the other like Dragnet software they right. use in South Korea on cell phone networks. But you know, it has to be coupled with a really robust investment into our public health infrastructure. So, I mean, imagine you're in your house and you have this app and you're notified that you passed in the hallway by somebody who was later diagnosed with COVID-19. You know, in the absence of access to testing, access to a healthcare system where you trust that if you were not infected, that you're not going to become infected by physically going to that hospital and receiving care, that you're mm -hmm. going to be treated with dignity when you receive it. What what happens there? I mean, I, I think some of these things can even cause harm, short of what we associate with surveillance. Yeah, um, that's true. That's you know, how true. are you going to treat your neighbors? Um, you know, if we cannot access care and if we cannot access robust test testing, I, I just don't think that it could be understood. I'm, I'm just not convinced tech is going to save us outside oh, no. of really robust investment in public health. And even contact tracing has its problems. The guy in Singapore was pointing out that you have to have a human layer in your contact tracing because contact tracing is super intensive. He said they were having 65 different staff on one, one case because it requires that much work to contact who all they've been in touch with and everything else. And so the idea that tech can supplant that human layer and add a layer of cultural nuance and specificity, like Italy's big problem was that Italy has a culture that valorizes elder care. And, and so they had households with multiple generations in them. And if one person went back to their household as a spreader, they ended up killing off half their family, right? But that's a cultural thing. That's not necessarily a tech thing. And how does tech account for that particular space, particularly here in the United States, where many families are multiple generations under one roof because of environmental and uh, economic segregation? Right. It's, it's a huge, as you point out, it's a huge problem. Who do you lock down? How are they affected? How is their, their income affected? Right. It's, it's a lot. Well, especially how do you account for um, disparities in quality of health are, are grounded on all this history that you talk mm -hmm. about with redlining. I mean, black people are disproportionately located next to Superfund sites, mm -hmm. you know, next to Medicaid clinic. You know, the, the, the quality of care that people have access to is differentiated according to like race, gender, class, et cetera. Um, so, you know, having these pre-existing conditions is, you know, tells you also where that person lives often. Um, but I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about, um, kind of going back to your book about the critical digital technological practice and kind of, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> is it, no, but I mean, there was a, there's a lot in your book. I, I was just hoping you could speak a little more about that and kind of what, you know, part of what I'm thinking, can we, do we need a new green book for this time? I mean, is, or is the, is the same information oh God, highway please, anyway? Please don't put that on me. Uh, one, of my, <laughs> uh, one of my scariest stories was, so my dissertation was on uh, the, the responses online from Black folk to Hurricane Katrina's aftermath. So I looked at looters versus finders, refugees versus evacuees, 
And one of my uh, white classmates stood up during my defense and said, do you think this book will help solve racism? No. So I'm not trying to be a green book. Okay. Uh, so you want to know about the method that I use, CTDA, or you want to know about the matrix? Oh, both. I mean, we can't. Well, yeah. You want to tell us about both the matrix? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So the method, I'll do the method first, but I think I can do that in 25, 50 words or less. So uh, you talked about digital divide. I was unsatisfied with how analyses of black tech technological practice seem to ride on deficit models or on celebratory resistance to oppression models. And so I needed to come up with a way to understand black technology use from a black technology perspective. That's originally how I started talking about belief, right? Uh, and so... That's where that method came from. It's basically discourse analysis um, that investigates how people understand themselves with relationship to technology. And as such, it needs a philosophical perspective from that group. For me, I use Du Bois and his, you know, he's canonical for sociology and a whole host of other fields, but his philosophy of Black experience to shape how I look at how Black people are understanding themselves encountering technology, as opposed to doing it from a top-down perspective or from a political economic perspective. So like my Twitter article was written using this method before Ferguson, right? Which you can see in the book. Like I try to address it, but I really can't because my argument is that without the libidinal stuff that was going on Twitter, the Man Crush Mondays and Women Crush Wednesdays, uh, the TV One shows, without that stuff going on, Black Twitter would not have had the capacity to mount a political resistance, right? They built out a space from cultural commons places where people felt comfortable and intimate enough to then build out collective action from that, right? And so that's CTDA. It looks at both the tech artifact, the tech practices, I'm sorry, both. It looks at each of the tech artifact, the tech practices, and the beliefs about a, that a particular group brings with them to understand why culture shapes technology in the way it does. Not 50 words, but close. Uh, the matrix is an extension of that belief part. So uh, I found this this article that I love and I cite every time by this guy named Joel Dienerstein. And he talks about how technology is the mythos of American identity, right? Basically, it's our understanding of how we have, have come to our preeminent place in the world, right? Uh, if you think about manifest destiny or uh, particularly it's racialized and imperialistic uh, provocations, right? Where white folk thought that because uh, indigenous folk did not cultivate the land in a technological manner, meaning they didn't strip mine it, they didn't drain it for resources, they didn't overfish or overforest, they thought that that meant that, that those lands were undeveloped and they felt God ordained them to go forth and technologically colonize those spaces, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the Western technocultural matrix, right? And the Western technocultural matrix is progress, religion, modernity, whiteness, masculinity, and the future. But in the book, I argue that in that in that matrix, blackness is a black technical object. And so I can't talk about a black technocultural matrix simply using that, right? So I had to recast it. And mine is blackness, intersectionality, modernity, America, the future, and invention, right? Uh, and uh, I recast it in that way to kind of highlight how, how important it is for me it's all about me. How important it is for me to <laughs> I enjoy my blackness. Blackness is not something that I am being punished with. It is something that I enjoy and take pleasure with in every day. 
And I also recognize that that blackness is not possible without the colonial and imperialist activities of the of of Europe. Right. So I have America in there as well. So my blackness in America is different from somebody's blackness in the Caribbean or in Brazil or in the UK. And that matrix is built out so that you can substitute those out. The other part of me enjoying blackness is the fact that we are super inventive. And in some ways it's Afrofuturistic, like we make a dollar out of 15 cent like it's magic, right? Uh, make a way out of no way. But in other ways, it's simply that we love to express ourselves. If if you look back at Africa, there's a, a group in the Congo called the Congolese Sapurs, right? These are men who are walking through villages that are impoverished as fuck, but they are wearing these sharp, sharply tailored, brightly colored suits with accessories and gaiters and everything else. To me, that's one of the things we do. We celebrate the self in the ways that we have. You think about Easter church, Easter dresses, right? And outfits. You got to go Easter shopping if you're going to go to service that day, because that's the day where everybody shows up. So you got to show out, right? Our, Our sense of style and invention is really important to us. And so that should be part of any way we understand our own technology use. So TikTok, Jalea Burrell, right? And her renegade dance, which is not meant for old people, uh, I've tried it, right? <laughs> I'm not granny, what's her name on TikTok, where her hips is loose as a goose, right? I am stiff as hell, so I cannot do the renegade dance, right? But watching her creativity and the, her joy in doing that is part and parcel of her digital practice, right? So the Black Technocultural Matrix attempts to try to sort of capture that particular thing. I can say I've been critiqued on it, which I appreciate. Um, um, many feminist scholars don't feel like it's, feminist enough, which I kind of have to live with. I'm not a feminist, but also I've been in contact with Kenitra Brooks, who did the Lemonade Reader and Syllabus, and Kenitra pointed out uh, that it's not spiritual enough either, right? And so those are things I need to address, like how is the role of the Black church, not necessarily, but Black's relations to the supernatural and the spirit realm, how does that evoke our particular technological capacity? And I was like, damn, that's hot. I don't know. I I need to work (laughs) on that, right? (laughs) <laughs> so there's, there's work to do on it, but I think of this as a starting place, right? Uh, and I think it could work if you transpose it to other uh, ethnicities as well. I think the Asian American technocultural matrix would be different from the Latino, Latinx technocultural matrix because like Latinx has to do with indigeneity in a way that Blackness doesn't really work on, right? And Asian Americans have to deal with their uh, really kind of um, limbo status, uh, liminal status as both uh, immigrants and model minorities, right? And so it will differ depending on the group, but it's a start. I hit y'all with a two-piece dinner. I, I wanted <laughs> yeah, to recommend a, a paper that that seems to talk about that in, in the context of another culture, but in uh, in South Asia, um, Sharifa Sultana wrote this great paper on witchcraft and HCI. Um, it's called Ooh, Witchcraft and HCI, Morality, Modernity, and Post-Colonial Computing in Rural Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she mm-hmm. draws some some fascinating connections between how people there are using technologies that were not built for them, not not designed with them in mind, but to uh, recreate and reenact some of the cultural practices that have existed for a very long time. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, and she got an ACM. That's dope. okay. <laughs> it's a really okay. good paper, worth a read. I, I appreciate you putting me on. That's because I have students here who want to talk about putting, uh, addressing culture in ACI because y'all know ACI is really focused on instrumental means of understanding interaction, right? They talk about ethics as an ad. They talk about uh, culture as an ad, but they're primarily focused on efficiency and rationality 
Uh, and so getting them to understand the role of culture is, oh, <laughs> it's draining, right? So this is a dope, well, thank you for bringing to me are the... No, I was just going to say HCI to me are the computer science fast star, or now it's fact, fact star. Uh, people mm -hmm. who like read one more paper than what was in the footnotes of the, of, <laughs> of the text paper about sociology. <laughs> like, I mean, they're really trained like in, you know, maximizing efficiency and optimization, but they like, you know, they, it was adjacent to, they read something, they read something by a black person and, and they about that. Right. Um, but also the last part of what you were talking about, um, in terms of including prophecy, religion, and spirituality into the Black Techno Matrix, reminded me of Stanley and I have been participating in this Robin G. Kelly study group about his um, mm -hmm. Peace Solidarity is Not a Market Exchange, right. which is also a meditation on Thelonious Monk um, and talks about the dispute between Cornell West and Ta-Nehisi Coates. And it really is something that stuck with me as that I have, a, in my former life, I was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. And I get a lot out of like Marxism <laughs> and a political economy analysis, but it just, I mean, you know, Marx was in the library for a long time. I guess it wasn't a lot of black folk. Like there's just mm -hmm. epistemologically, it misses so much for me. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so that's just something, those were comments that just, just really resonated with me. But um, Stanley, Ooh, I, I just, I want to hear more from you. Cause Ooh, I know yeah, that I you're do actually, yeah, I have a, um, First, I love that you brought up the example of the Congo in order to express creativity in Black folks, just because I, I feel like we also often use a deficit model of saying, well, Black folks are creative because of a survivalist kind of mindset, uh, where we've been given so little and then we just make do with what we have, as opposed to um, just being creative in any context. Uh, not saying mm -hmm. the Congo is void of uh, colonialist oppressions, um, but thinking about spirituality versus tech, um, in white um, technological use um, or technoculture, spirituality almost has no place and it's almost an antithesis to tech use. And so um, how do you see spirituality possibly playing out in uh, the Black technoculture? So let me push back a little bit. So spirituality in the white technoculture is heavily premised on the Manichaean duality, right, of uh, bad versus good, but also white versus black, right? And so for whiteness, their spirituality is transcendence, where they look at the body of Christ and its symbolism and the blood of Christ and its symbolism as evidence that you can transcend this earthly body. So for them, uh, their early ventures on the internet to, to go back too far uh, was that they could not know, they could transcend their body and be someone who they are not. Sound familiar, right? Um, and so <laughs> that's why they could justify slavery because they were like, we can imprison your body, but we're going to save your soul, right? And so to them, that's their spirituality. They, they see it. And this is part of the problem with Western uh, cognitive science and the like, right? They think that your spirit, your spirit is separate from your body. And I work really hard in the book to say, no, we run on embodied cognition over here, fam, right? Our body is the mm. vessel through which we understand the world. You cannot separate our spirit of the world from the bodies that we are harboring in it, right? And so there is that, that whiteness is really hard to pull apart, right? Uh, it's, but that's intentional. Whiteness has that interpretive flexibility. Um, so pushing back on, uh, on that is necessary. And if only to understand that the black church, particularly in the uh, colonized and imperialized uh, countries that, the, that Europe took over was very much focused on freedom from their earthly bonds to escape the horrors of slavery. 
right? Mm-hmm. And that later became tra- transposed to a freedom from the legalistic uh uh, and civic codes that um, uh, imprison them from practicing their right to be part of a franchise, right? So that's organized religion. Uh, what Kenitra was pushing me towards was more syncretic uh, understandings of our relationship with the spirit world, right? And um, that we have extrasensory uh, means of understanding the world that do not necessarily translate to what's codified in the Bible, the Quran, or any other text. And so her push was for me to understand what it means to have that sixth, seventh, eighth sense and the ways in which we understand technology. And I, I admit, I'm still a newbie, a novice to thinking about it. That's why your witchcraft paper uh, that you recommended is so dope to me. I want to read it. But I think there's something there, right? There's something to women's intuition, yeah. right? There's something to uh, the way the hair prickles on the back of your neck when you walk into a house that where people have been killed. Right. That has nothing to do with organized religion. That's your body's understanding that something bad has happened in this space. Right. And so I feel you on that. I just I'm not sure I'm not ready or sure how exactly to theorize because uh, I don't want to operationalize it. I'm not sure how to theorize it with relationship to technology yet. But I think the way you're framing it is a good way to start. And that really also you have you read uh, Abebe Barhane's uh, Why Descartes is Wrong? A Person is a Person Through Other Persons? No, I have not. I need to. I've been kind of uh, really working on disentangling uh, Foucault's technologies of the self Um, and some Mm -hmm. uh, Black theorists and Black philosophers on race as well. And so, uh, no, I need to. If you will send me that citation, I'll be happy to dig through that. I need more stuff to read and not write. Uh. Yeah, it's actually, it's only one page. I, I mean, I love her. She's also on Twitter. She's very active on Twitter, fighting with the white people about white supremacy. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, she t- she talks about uh, inactive, cognition, inactive cognition. And um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really good. I definitely recommend it. And it's only like one page on Eon. Um, there's some, the, there's some really the, good stuff out the there question. on embodied cognition, but it's not racialized. Um, and I think that's actually an important well, part of it because... My, my black body doesn't react to environments in the same way that a white body does. Um, well, she's an amazing, I mean, I'm also like a little bit nationalist, so she's Ethiopian, but she's definitely a black woman. And definitely, I feel, I mean, I would say comes to it with a critical race lens. And um, she also, she also came under attack recently because she wrote um, a piece critiquing uh the robots rights movement and just like, oh, why are we obsessed with the rights of machinery? Um, yeah. But I was wondering if you could speak a little to um, the relationship between joy and catharsis and just listening to your talk that you gave at Woodson, kind of talking about um, like color people time and how like the Internet is both a space where we can express joy, but also that that comes from a response to the scientific manage- management of black bodies during slavery and like the trying to maximize the extraction of labor um, mm-hmm. and that and you kind of made a connection to that in Amazon. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, um, yeah. So there's a woman that I've become fascinated with. She's a black woman. She does vegan recipes and her trademark phrase is like, so like that. Um, I don't know if y'all have seen her yet, but if you do see her, she's an absolute (laughs) joy. She has this really pleasant voice and she's cute as she can be. Right. And she's doing like, she made carrot vegan bacon the other day, which apparently was disgusting when other people tried it, but she made it look good. And one of the things she said is that we have to keep from crying, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, I've, I really run on that. So I have to be careful. I need to be more careful when I talk about joy because many people think that when I'm talking about joy, I'm really only talking about pleasurable expressions of happiness or the like. And I'm really coming from an Afro-optimist perspective where Black joy is really the celebration of being in a space where we weren't necessarily uh, understood to be. Uh, it's a re refutation mm -hmm. of the social death that Orlando Patterson talks about. So it is celebratory, right? But it doesn't always look like joy. Sometimes it looks like the ability of the ratchet to express anger and frustration unfettered, right? Not bound mm -hmm. by middle-class mores of being quiet or working-class mores of sucking it up and just doing the job you need to do. The ratchet is like all oh, that. Like, I'm, I'm mad. You're going to know I'm mad until I'm no longer mad. And if you're still here to, mm -hmm. uh, to see that. Right. Uh, and so to me, mm -hmm. that's the difference. that's the joy. Joy and catharsis are and catharsis are inseparable. If you look at a baby's joy, a baby, when it is happy, has no other moment of being besides that. It's not being happy while thinking about paying off this student loan debt that I got to do or when they gonna get their next bottle. When they're happy, they're all happy. And so that's a moment of catharsis for me. Catharsis isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, blackness then is, uh, that, that cathartic celebration of self, uh, in a space where we're, we're constrained. Right. And so I, I got to that through the libidinal's insistence on jouissance, which is an excess of life, right? Jouissance as a French term doesn't translate cleanly to English because, you know, English is not really the best language. Um, it's really confusing for a number of reasons, but part of it is that it's also, uh, deeply ambiguous when it doesn't need to be. Right. So there are multiple words for pleasure in French. Right. There are multiple words for pleasure in other languages that English simply doesn't have. So jouissance is an excess of life. And Jarrett Sexton, the Afro pessimist, really does a better job of explaining jouissance than I do. Uh, but I ride on this thing that uh, I talked about this for the Twitter article. Twitter is ritual catharsis. Right. But catharsis is really a way of expressing a libidinal moment that is not anticipated for, well, it is anticipated, but is not beholden to political, economic, or authoritarian surveillance structures. Does that make sense? Hmm. Uh, in Atlanta, there's a culture, in uh, Philly too, there's a culture of, of young folk riding four-wheelers and motorbikes in groups of 75 or more down public streets, right? Uh, and hmm. they all look really New York evil. has that too. Right. They don't look like they're necessarily enjoying it, but they look like they're having fun being together. That's a cathartic moment, right? For them. It's also deeply frustrating to the people who are waiting to get through on because they're trying to get to their appointment or whatever. But that is a moment of catharsis that interrupts the the routine, the everyday, that is just as important for me to uh, witness as it is for them to participate in. Don't know if I made that explanation any better. No, it, made a, it, made, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it also reminded me of, I don't know if you read Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake mm -hmm. on Blackness and Being. Mm -hmm. um, and she's talking about like what is an excess of the horror and of racial yes. injustice and kind of yes. like a meditative practice of like thinking of in the hold and like the climate of anti-Blackness. Um, but I, I want to be mindful of time, but I was hoping that you could speak a little bit to um, the Amazon example and the kind of like what does the scientific management of human productivity and labor have to do with um, is that is that a long question for a final conclusion no it's not um, you're making me think uh, I was like I talked about Amazon oh no this is a question um, <laughs> so there's a really dope book called Accounting for Slavery by, by Caitlin Reynolds 
And in that book, Caitlin talks about, um, Dr. Reynolds talks about how the plantation is one of the first modern enterprises, especially in the fact that it did a lot of what uh, Franklin, uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor is credited with, with scientific management. The plantation was a space where laborers were uh, quantified in terms of their reproductive potential, but also crucially in terms of whether or not they could perform certain tasks to a numerical standard. And then once that numerical standard was met, all the employees had to do that. So if one person could pick a cotton at an exceptional rate of 120 bales a day, everybody was held to that standard. Does that sound familiar? And it's really interesting to me that we back to picking right? Because Amazon warehouse employees pick, that's what they do, right? And they are algorithmically surveilled and computationally surveilled to maintain that rate, regardless of their bodily functions. They don't get bathroom breaks. They don't get uh, paid for the time they spend after their shift where they're being patted down to make sure they're not stealing anything. They are basically re-implanted in a technological plantation. And I usually don't get this polemic, right? But it's really, the, the parallels are really like undeniable, where the algorithm measures how productive they are for the purpose of this particular company uh, to the point where they have actually eliminated the management aspect of it. So managers always the first to go, right? As opposed to capitalists where they're, they're not only being surveilled by the equipment, but they can be fired by the equipment. So if you don't meet your targets, the algorithm generates a firing notice without any intervention from a person. Right. And it works that way for the subcontractors who are delivering your packages and the people in the warehouse. And so this codification, this quantification of black lives, which I think you guys are really rightly right to be concerned about, is also deeply met, mediated by capitalistic abstraction of bodies in order to extract the maximal maximal profit from those bodies without concern for their their bodily concerns. Is that too much? No, nah, preach. No, nah, I appreciate it. <laughs> The more you abstract the body, the more you can deny whatever that body needs. And you guys were talking about healthcare earlier, but not only healthcare, but self-care in order to fit a capitalist paradigm where the body is really the only thing you can extract maximum profit from. You, you have to pay the suppliers for their packages. You have to pay UPS to ship. Guess who you can exploit? The people who are picking those packages and putting them on the conveyor belt to ship. You can exploit the hell out of them because they have no recourse. They're not stakeholders. They're technical objects. Right. And because we have to feed our kids. And they're we, made invisible by the technology. Yes. Not invisible. Well, not invisible because they have right? to. Like work. I don't go to a store and see anyone. You go on a website. Sorry. Right. 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 And so your practices, because I have primnesia. I'm not, I, I'm ashamed to admit it, but, you know, especially during this cold time of the, the corona, right? I'm constantly getting surprised. Packers like, when did I order that? Like, <laughs> so uh, I am definitely guilty of exploiting that particular system. Right. Um, but I'm also really cognizant and I try to broadcast whenever possible the need for these workers to unionize and at least build a collective uh, presence in the structures that they are forced to work with it. It's an imperfect solution, but people got to eat. No, I appreciate that last point, because, I mean, reading reading your work and listening to you, there's so much optimism. And I just find like I personally am not at that stage of grief. Um, I kind of cycle between anger and clarity. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> I like the way you said that. 
And I just, you know, at this moment when we need, we're like basically dependent on, you know, Instacart, Amazon, these various delivery services when it's like endangering uh, the public health to go outside. Although some people don't have that, the right to socially distance. Um, what does solidarity look like? What does grassroots resistance look like? You know, right. I, don't, I mean, I feel like we got to hope because ain't nothing else to do. But what, what we what does that look like? I don't think we can afford to decolonize at that moment. We can strategize to get to that point, but we still have to work within the structures that we have. Hey, Jay, one second. You guys, I have to go to my next meeting. Uh, <laughs> but it's No really- problem. I really appreciate this. And could mm-hmm. you just share um, one recommendation of something that you're reading with our audience? And also, um, I'll follow up with you. Any of the people that you recommended, including Kenitra Brooks that you said, but the lemonade yeah. syllabus, I would love to, to connect with them for the next okay. So the the reading I suggest is not a full academic reading. It's an interview between David Theo Goldberg and Ahil Mbembe, who wrote Critique of Black Reason. And it's really informative because Mbembe talks about a couple of things that are important, which is an ethics of care, um, but also mutual aid. Right. And I think those are both important for the technological moment we find ourselves in. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's a pleasure talking Thank to you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank I'll you. talk to you all again uh, soon, hopefully. Okay. Bye. Bye.